Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. When silver turns gold, Silver Lake buys a stake in Man City owner CFG, giving it a record valuation. Going hostile, HP earnings beat, but is it enough to withstand the threat from Xerox? And Papa Don't Preach. Papa John's founder orders 40 pizzas in 30 days. Perhaps it is time to preach. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Once again to the show, happy Wednesday, and it's pre-Turkey Day, pre-Thanksgiving here in the United States. But I have to say, just looking at the markets right now here in the United States, the bulls have been feasting early. We closed at a record high yesterday, and judging by the futures at this moment, it looks like we're going to open and add to that this morning too. In fact, we've had record closes in five of the last eight sessions here. We can thank the T word, and no, I don't mean Turkey trade talks. No eye rolling. Let me just walk you through this, please. President Trump says the deal is in, quote, the final throws. Hmm. In a good way. I believe last night he said he'd been holding up a trade deal in order to get better terms. He doesn't want an even deal here. Meanwhile, I have to say the data on both sides continues to argue for some kind of resolution here. We found out today that Chinese industrial profits fell some 10 percent in October. That's their steep, steepest drop in months. Chinese consumers also looking stretched here too. Fresh numbers showing household debt at record levels too. What about here in the United States? Well, USG GDP growth numbers surprising to the upside today. A revised 2.1% for the third quarter, stronger than the 1.9% preliminary reading that we'd already had. Durable goods orders also coming in stronger than expected. That said, growth is expected to get worse from here. The Atlanta Federal Reserve says GDP is trending at under half a percent for the fourth quarter of this year. So some significant softening between the third and fourth quarters. Elsewhere, though, take a look at what we're seeing in terms of price action. European stocks mostly higher today and sitting right now at four-year highs. Asian markets also finishing the session in the green as well. The Nikkei close to a one-year high as well. What about for Hong Kong, though? Alibaba's shares rising an additional 3% following their record-breaking debut yesterday. So we're looking at almost a 10% 
percent rise now over the past two days. Now, speaking of records, I've already mentioned it. We've got a big one in the sporting world and we really do kick off with the drivers today. Private equity firm Silver Lake buying a 10% stake in City Football Group. This is the owner of Manchester City Football Club, though they own a number of them around the world. Matt Egan has all the details. It's the key here, Matt, is the valuation that this seems to give CFG $4.8 billion. So one of the biggest sporting franchises in the world here. Talk us through the details. Yeah, Julia, this is no doubt a hat trick for Man City and its owner, CFG. First, as you mentioned, the valuation getting done at a record $4.8 billion. Secondly, they're getting $500 million cash injection here from Silver Lake. They can use that money to finance their global expansion. I mean, they already own clubs in the United States in Australia, in Japan, in China, and they might just buy more. And the other thing is the fact that this investment is coming from a well-respected Silicon Valley private equity firm means that they can really hold this up as a validation of their overall strategy. So it really is a win on all three fronts for this, this deal right here. You know, and at first glance, I don't think, uh, you know, a football club really would fit into a portfolio for a, uh, a tech PE firm. But uh, because, because, you know, Silver Lake is really known for investing in Dell. Um, it was an early uh, investor in um, Skype as well. And it also owns shares in Alibaba. Um, but in recent years, Silver Lake has actually expanded into sports and entertainment. It now owns a stake in the mixed martial arts group uh, UFC. It also owns shares of Madison Square Garden Company, which is the owner of the New York Knicks and uh, the New York Rangers. And so this is kind of a logical extension of that. Um, this is really just the latest example of a, a monster price tag put on a sports franchise. Uh, just two months ago, the Alibaba co-founder, Joseph Tsai, he went out and he took full control of the NBA's Brooklyn Nets at a valuation of nearly $2.4 billion. That was a record for a U.S. sports franchise. Um, I think it's just another reminder of how these sports teams are really more than trophy assets now uh, in an era of cord cutting and uh, streaming wars. There is just so much demand to get eyeballs on these sports teams. And so you're getting you're seeing just amazing TV contracts. And that really is the holy grail for cable companies and for tech firms now, Julia. Yeah, you make such a great point. The diversification potential that this provides for a private equity firm like Silver Lake. But to your point as well, the, the franchise growth that we're seeing and the interest in sports in particular and the opportunities going forward, I think, is a great point. The, the breakdown of ownership, though, of this specifically for CFG is interesting to me. If you look at it, we've got, what, a 12% stake of its owned by a Chinese consortium. Sheikh Mansour, 77% here. So just talk to us a bit about that, too, because that is a, a growth opportunity, a geographical growth opportunity here is also interesting, I think, as well. Yeah, no, you're right. They have this global footprint both in their investor base now, which now includes a, a California private equity firm, and also in where they have their their, their clubs around the world. Um, so I think that that is also, a, you know, another important 
part here. Uh, what's intriguing is kind of what are they going to do with this money now that they have another $500 million to spend? And uh, some of it actually might be spent here in New York. Uh, the Financial Times reported that they could be looking to try to put some of this money towards paying for a new stadium for their New York uh, football franchise. So, so that would be interesting as well. Um, I think it's just it shows that there's just this boom in sports valuations right now. Uh, and Silver Lake wants to take a part of that. And for, for, for a long time now, it seems like it's been a really good investment, uh, particularly when we have interest rates as low as they are. Uh, we've got all these investors figuring why not uh, borrow some money and why not put it to use in, uh, in, in buying a, another sports franchise. Hooray! More soccer here in the United States as well, or football. We like the sound of that. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver, Hewlett-Packard, or HP's earnings beating Wall Street expectations. The PC maker, though, continuing to try and fend off the hostile takeover bid from Xerox. Its competitor, Claire Sebastian, joins us on this story. You know, I say they beat expectations here, Claire, but I, I look at the minor, the tiny rise that we saw in revenues, and I kind of feel like they need to do more here to justify fending off or saying, look, we're not interested in any kind of offer from Xerox, potentially when we're talking about a $33 billion bid. What do we think? Right. Yeah, Julia, I mean, they're not exactly printing money, if you see what I did there. Revenue accelerated a little bit, up 0.3% uh, uh, year on year, which, you know, it was enough for shareholders uh, today, at least. The, the stock, it looks like it'll it'll rise uh, when it opens uh, <laughs> shortly. But, but yeah, that argument for, for shooting down Xerox now several times publicly uh, and, and then in pretty strong terms is that they are strong enough to go it alone. They have a turnaround plan. They don't need Xerox. They have said they're willing to look uh, at a potential combination, but they are hinting that they would rather be the acquirer. And a key number from this earnings report, Julia, which further weakens their their argument here, is that their printing business was down 6% year on year. This is matters because this is about a third of revenues, but it's about two thirds of earnings. And this is why analysts are looking at this and saying a combination might make sense. Both Xerox and HP are heavily you know, into the, the printing area, which continues to decline in the age of smartphones and the cloud. So that, again, weakens their argument. I just uh, realised what you did there with the uh, printing of the cash. Uh, that was a nice moment. Delayed onset humour in, in my case, but I was laughing quietly behind the scenes there. Um, to your point exactly, I mean, we've seen $4 billion added to the value of both of these companies. Carl Icahn, of course, activist investor, owns both, so he's uh, winning either way here. Um, but markets clearly like this. I just wonder whether, given that Xerox has to borrow heavily in order to buy HP here, HP could perhaps borrow a load of money and... and put a hostile bid in for Xerox in reverse. Um, just throwing it out there, Claire, what do we think of that one? Yeah, I think look, if you look at the letters that, that HP has sent to Xerox, they are clear that, that they you know, certainly haven't discounted the idea of a potential combination. But look, they are a much bigger company. Their market cap is about three times the size of Xerox. Their revenue is more like six times uh, on an annual basis. Uh, and they have made it clear that, that they don't want to open their books until they can do, do some due diligence on Xerox. They have publicly undermined Xerox's turnaround plan, said that uh, they, their business is, is, is lacking uh, strategy and focus uh, and it's clear that they are looking at this more in the sense of whether or not they want to be the acquirer rather than the target having said that Julia, on the earnings call last night they were pretty clear that they see their stock uh, as undervalued on, a, on an individual basis that they are very confident in their turnaround plan they're talking about returning cash to shareholders uh, so maybe they're actually thinking they'd rather go it alone they don't need xerox at all
Yeah, investors going, show me the money. Claire Sebastian, thank you very much for that. All right, let's move on. Uh, the New York Times reporting that President Trump was aware of the whistleblower's complaint when he finally released military aid to Ukraine. This is newly released transcript show the former official who first signed off on the freeze deemed the request so unusual he feared it could violate federal law. All this as Second House Committee prepares to hold public impeachment hearings next week. Kristen Holmes joins us now on this story. Kristen, explain why this is important, because it does seem to bring a whole new meaning to the term quid pro quo here, given the timing, not only of the freeze on the aid to Ukraine, but also who knew what when. Absolutely, Julia. So we want to break this down. I'm going to start even before he learned about the whistleblower complaint, because we've learned a lot about this general timeline over the last couple of days. One big revelation being that that aid was actually held up the same day that that President Trump, President Zelensky phone call happened. Now, we're not sure if that's a coincidence or what, but it certainly seems notable. Now, moving forward to this New York Times report, as you mentioned, uh, they say that President Trump was made aware of the whistleblower complaint at the end of August. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, why is that so important? Well, it really casts a shadow on everything that happened afterwards. Uh, one of the things, especially being that Gordon Sondland phone call. Remember, the ambassador to the European Union said he called up President Trump and said, what exactly do you want with Ukraine? And President Trump said, no quid pro quo. There's not a quid pro quo. Well, this would be really relevant and very important if he had known already that someone had come forward and said that there was, in fact, a quid pro quo on this phone call. So that could give a reasoning to why he was so adamant about that when he had been, in fact, uh, asking for this dirt, for this information on the Biden. Uh, then you see John Bolton resigning, also a huge issue here. And then following that, the release of the aid. Uh, so this is raising a lot of questions as to whether or not that aid was only released uh, because President Trump knew that people were looking into this. Uh, so uh, all of this is really framing what exactly happened from the time of that July 25th phone call up until now. Uh, and it changes exactly what President Trump's reaction or how President Trump's reaction uh, is viewed now in a different sphere. You know, it's quite fascinating. You know, one of the other things that the president seemed to suggest yesterday was that Rudy Giuliani, his, his private attorney, wasn't acting on his behalf in Ukraine. I mean, if we take a step back here for a second, is he perhaps suggesting that Rudy Giuliani was going rogue or he was, he was acting on behalf of the United States? And one of the questions that was being asked, I think, on social media yesterday was, does that then reduce or, or remove the attorney-client um, privilege for future hearings here? Did President Trump just throw Rudy Giuliani under a proverbial bus here, do we think? big question. I saw a lot of memes last night about President, I mean, about Giuliani going underneath the bus there uh, in that comment. And this is the first time uh, President Trump has really said anything like that. But more importantly, over and over again, Rudy Giuliani, the president's uh, personal attorney, has said that he was doing this at the behest of President Trump. That will completely change the entire dynamic, what exactly it looks like, why Rudy Giuliani was there in the first place talking to people if he wasn't working at behest of President Trump. Uh, so we have not heard from Giuliani, and I think that is the most important thing to keep your eyes on. How is he going to react? We know, of course, uh, over the past couple of weeks, many people have asked Giuliani over and over again, are you going to be thrown under the bus? 
and he has the same joke where he says, well, if it happens, which it won't, I have insurance. Now, his lawyers say that he's joking around, but who knows right now if Rudy Giuliani does, in fact, have some sort uh, of insurance or information on President Trump. I think the big thing to watch, though, is how he responds to these remarks by President Trump, because it has been clear from the beginning, uh, he has repeatedly said that this was something that President Trump wanted him to do. And now President Trump is clearly taking a step back. And one thing we know about Rudy Giuliani, he's not normally shy in coming forward with his views. Kristen Holmes, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. If you're traveling into or from the United States, be prepared for major disruptions. Major storm systems could impact millions of travelers as Thanksgiving holiday gets started. Blizzard warnings are in, in effect in the West, with hundreds of flight cancellations already in Denver. Snow and powerful winds are hitting the Midwest and moving east. Police in Germany say they believe four people were involved in stealing precious artifacts from a Dresden museum on Monday. That's after they reviewed surveillance video of the scenes. Authorities also say they have received more than 200 possible leads via the police website. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, brace yourself for the crypto wars. Leading economist Ken Rogoff enters the digital currency debate. And getting in gear, I speak to one of Ford's leading engineers on new technology as the literal tug of war continues with Tesla. That's coming up. Stay with CNN. First move live from the New York Stock Exchange this Wednesday. We're looking at fresh records for the Nasdaq and for the S&P when we open up this morning. There's a look at the futures right now. Call it perhaps a turkey trot to fresh highs today as we await new trade headlines and digest some stronger than expected GDP data, growth data here in the United States for the third quarter. Before the bell today, farm machinery make a deer though warning that 2020 results will come in weaker than expected as the agricultural sector grapples with those trade uncertainties. Deer shares are set to fall more than 4% as you can see at the open. That's the farming equipment maker. All right, let's talk about what we should expect in 2020. Joining me now is Krishna Mamani. He's vice chairman of investments at Invesco. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I loved your note, uh, your look ahead, because it was in reverse. It was what it was absolutely not expecting in 2020. Well, so, you know, you have to get your research read somehow. So this is uh, one little trick you have to... uh, Yeah, exactly. But the the, the bottom line is uh, 2020 is probably going to be one of the, at least the first half, uh, one of the lowest volatility years that we have seen in a while for three reasons. One, the Federal Reserve has basically set it up very nicely. Not only are they not going to be tightening policy, they're expanding their balance sheet. And that is the case on a global basis. And second, the global economy is re-accelerating. It may not get to a very high level, but it's kind of coming off of a trough, uh, which probably ends up being in the fourth quarter of this year. And thirdly, we will have a trade deal. You know, call it whatever you want, phase one, put a lip, you know, kind of a lipstick on a pig. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not getting worse. That's all we need for a very good low volatility environment for 2020. Lipstick on a pig. 
So it's not going to be very comprehensive, but we never expected that anyway. Exactly. So and, and the impact of the trade deal on the real economy is really going to be very modest. What we need is for the sentiment to calm down, CapEx to get going. There's enough momentum in the global economy for that to be the case. We just don't need anything thrown in the middle of it. So sticking with the not going to see theme, so we're not going to see a U.S. recession in 2020. We can rule that out. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, U.S. recession with, with the Fed pivoting and the reacceleration that is unfolding, you know, the consumption part of the economy is doing quite well to begin with. Any slowdown there is going to be temporary. And now you see revival of manufacturing. So the likelihood of a recession is very, very low in my uh, What about not seeing a materially weaker U.S. dollar? Because this is something that has come out in the sure, earnings and it matters sure. all around the world for emerging market investment whatever we're talking about so I, I think that is really one of the uh, kind of the most critical thing for 2020 you know normally in this sort of an environment where the Fed is in an easing mode and you have reacceleration risk on you would expect the dollar to weaken but this time around the reacceleration is very modest and the growth, uh, growth differential as a result is very modest. Rate differential in favor of U.S. is still quite substantial. So that combination basically ensures that if we see any weakening, it is going to be very modest. Uh, uh, all we, uh, but for the markets to do better, all we need is for the dollar not to strengthen. And that is not going to be the case. Okay, so that's the important part of this. And I made the point that it matters not just for the United States, but for elsewhere in the world. What about if we compare developed market growth to emerging market growth? I guess the two countries I'm thinking of here, India and China. Well, so I think that is, if, if there is going to be a revival of growth to a really good level at some point, those would be the two economies that will be driving. Unfortunately, in 2020, that is not going to be the case. So developed market, actually, so U.S. and Europe probably gets close to uh, potential of, let's say, one and a half percent. The emerging markets, on the other hand, where the potential is probably north of four and a half percent, probably stays close to four and change. So I think the, the, the shortfall in emerging markets is something that is going to be with us in 2020. Are we or are we not going to see greater stimulus from China? Because to your point, it's not just about the Federal Reserve. We've got 60% plus of the central banks around the world here stimulating, which is also creating a sort of cushioning effect here. Um, China. Well, so I think China has the fiscal capacity to stimulate its economy. Uh, but it is letting its economy slow down. And what that tells me is they're far more focused on the transition of the economy rather than keeping the growth rate north of 6%. So I'm really not, you know, they're stimulating just to make sure the growth rate remains uh, good enough, but not accelerating. I think that's what they'll do, but no significant additional stimulus. Uh, I don't think it's coming. One of the other big features, I think, of 2019 was the, the focus that we saw on interest rates, on the pullback in interest rates, the inversion of the yield curve, as we talked about it here, particularly in the United States. What about rates? What are we not going to see? Well, so, well, what we are not going to see is a lot of volatility in rates okay. for two reasons. One, the Fed is not going to be cutting rates because the economy is stabilizing. 
Equally importantly, actually perhaps from an asset price standpoint, more important is the fact that even when you see the acceleration and asset prices go up, the Fed is not going to tighten. They have broadcast that. So I, I think that combination basically anchors the, uh, the front end of the market. And with the growth being relatively modest, the long end of the market gets uh, the, the volatility there is going to be pretty low as well. And so you can translate that around the world as well. If we're seeing central banks easing, that anchors the sort of the shorter term rates. But at the same time, if growth isn't strong enough, really, you don't see longer term rates rise either. Yeah, I, I think there used to be a lot of different between individual economies, now we are all the same. We are acting alike. Synchronized stability. I saw that term. What do we think of this term? No, that, I think we are coming up with all sorts of things over the last, you know, it was a synchronized whatever Slow last down. time. About, I, I think synchronized stability is a, kind of catches it perfectly. Yeah, I would agree. What about fresh highs then for the markets? Because we keep talking about record highs here, particularly in the United States. How much upside based on what you were just saying there is available then in 2020. So if, if you are at record highs and even if you go two points, it's a new it's record, record high. <laughs> record high. <laughs> so I think it's silly to talk about that. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say that growth is not going to be turbocharged and uh, policy is not being, you know, they're not cutting rates anymore. So that combination ensures we are talking about, you know, mid to high single digit type returns out of uh, the developed markets and maybe slightly better out of emerging markets. It's, it's not going to be one of the best years or anything of that sort, but it is going to be a decent year off of a really good year. I think we take that, quite frankly, oh, given absolutely. some of the turbulence. Absolutely. Krishna Mamani, great to have you with us, the Vice Chairman of Investments at Invesco. The Market Open is next. You're with First Move. Stay with us. We're back after this. First move, and that was the opening about this Wednesday morning. You can see executives from the Empire State Realty Trust ringing the opening bell this morning, celebrating the opening of the Empire State Building Observatory experience. And uh, just like that building, investors hoping stocks can make fresh highs on this uh, day before Thanksgiving. We're already at record levels, as we were just discussing there for the S&P and the Nasdaq. We're inching higher this morning. Remember, uh, the shortened trading week as well will take some liquidity out of the markets. We've had brand new data this morning, though, showing the U.S. economy growing at a stronger than expected 2.1% annual rate in the third quarter. Business investment slowing less than initially reported. And we saw durable goods orders rising more than half a percent last month due to increased defense-related orders. Investors were, in fact, expecting a more than 1% drop. It's all about the fourth quarter, though, now, where further weakness is expected. What about our global movers this morning? We've mentioned a deer already. Deer shares lower. The farm machinery giant reporting better than expected profits, but it was all about the guidance. The 2020 guidance was cut as farmers grapple with continued trade uncertainty. Right now, down some 4.6%. Dell also down 4%. The company said Q3 profits were beating expectations, but revenues actually fell short. It says Q4 sales will suffer from a shortage of chips from its main supplier, Intel. What about shares of another tech giant now? HP 
Those are higher by some one and a half percent. Results beating expectations, as we discussed earlier on in the show. Also, the company raising guidance as well. The company also fighting that hostile takeover bid from Xerox as well. Right now, higher by 1.6 percent. Disney. Right now, relatively unchanged. Reports say its new streaming service has added more than 1 million subscribers per day on average since it launched. So 1 million subscribers per day. Not bad if you can get it. All right, let's move on. On Monday's show, we heard the co-founder of Libra argue why Facebook's future payment system, Calibra, and the digital currency Libra, of course, will help bring greater inclusivity to regions of the world that remain unbanked. Here's a reminder. Libra is really optimized for that cross-border experience. So transactions where already today you're incurring fees and there's like many intermediaries throughout the value chain, uh, they all charge their own spreads uh, and, and so when you look at the, at the end result, uh, consumers and users are really excluded because of cost. There are those who look at this situation and Facebook's potential as a threat to regional central banks and their ability to operate monetary policy. However, my next guest says we need to focus more overseas, that the risks lie beyond the reach of U.S. regulators in China, for example. Ken Rogoff is former chief economist at the IMF and professor of economics at Harvard University, and he joins me from Cambridge, Massachusetts. So fantastic to have you on the show. You wrote a fascinating op-ed about this, and I just want to take a quote from it to, to begin. You say the real challenge for the United States isn't Facebook's proposed Libra, it's government-backed digital currencies like the one planned by China. Why? Why in your mind is this the real threat here? Well, if it's a currency like Libra or even Bitcoin, the rich countries have the ability to regulate where you can use it. Can you spend it in stores? Can you cash it in at banks? And by controlling that lever, they can really control it. If there's no final usage except buying a hitman or drugs, its liquidity, its value is very limited. But a state-sponsored digital currency, say by China, which seems very likely next year, China's probably not going to have a crypto secretive currency, but more a retail digital version of the one it has. Initially, it'll be aimed at domestic consumers, but it has global ambitions. The difference in the case of China is there's if China says you can spend it here, it's the world's largest economy, that's that final demand that can make it work. The advanced countries can still regulate it, say, well, you can't use it here, but there are lots of parts of the world where China and the United States disagree over policy, starting with all the countries U.S. has financial sanctions on. And I think, indeed, there's going to be a global market for China's currency. You know, it's interesting. I was in Singapore uh, 10 days ago and I actually did a panel that had the head of digital and, and blockchain for the People's Bank of China, the Chinese Central Bank. And he reiterated this is purely for domestic use. That is their only focus. And this is actually uh, something to do with trying to reduce the dominance of WeChat Pay and Alipay because they're afraid that if something went wrong with one of those players, they could have a systemic problem. You're laughing. You don't believe it. Oh, I do. I mean, that's certainly the initial push. 
it, as I said, it's initially going to be directed domestically and exactly for the reasons you say, that they have their versions of Amazon and Facebook issuing digital currencies that are immensely popular in China. China's way ahead of the United States, way ahead of Europe. But over time, there's no reason it's digital that it can't be used in North Korea, Iran, Russia. And I think over time, absolutely, it's China's ambition to challenge the dollar for global dominance, at least among a set of countries and perhaps in the world's underground markets. You know, one way that I asked perhaps this could be facilitated on a global scale is via the One Belt, One Road, using a digital renminbi to transact with African nations, for example, with Brazil. Do you think that's perhaps the best way that China could get global use? And we don't have to go down uh, sort of negative uses of this. Perhaps it could facilitate cheaper payments with debtor nations like those that I've just mentioned. What do you think of that? Well, well, that's a very good point. I mean, I think there's a reason that so far a lot of China's loans to those countries are actually in dollars. And even where they have some payments in Renminbi, the dollar is still dominant because at the end of the day, both sides trust that more. But I think you're absolutely right. That's a starting point for, you know, legal transactions with this currency. Again, you have to be able to use it somewhere. That's really the key to making a currency uh, work. But if China continues to grow, it's already, by some measures, the world's largest economy. That provides the sink. Again, the U.S. and Europe can block it out uh, within their borders, but they can't control its use abroad. You know, it's interesting that we're even having this discussion. When I talk to traditional economists, analysts, they're so skeptical about any part of this, quite frankly, at this moment. Why are you talking about this and and what do you want to see regulators do? Do we need to see the Federal Reserve coming up with its own Fed coin as has perhaps been mooted and, and dismissed by certain quarters? Is this what the U.S. needs to do? There are two separate issues. One are private currencies like Libra, and I think I am very skeptical about their long-run value simply because if the government can't observe the transactions the way it can observe credit cards, debit cards, it's going to regulate it. And if it can observe them, it's not at all obvious there'll be much of a market. But state-sponsored currencies are another matter. Um, I think people haven't really got their heads wrapped around how fast that's coming. Absolutely, the Bank of England's looking at it. The Bank of Canada's looking at it. The Federal Reserve, they're on top right now. They don't want to rock the boat. They're not going to do something to shake up a system that's already working for them. But yes, we'll eventually have a Fed coin, too. How long are we talking here? And to your point, you raise a great one. To a traditional investor in these, they'd say a centralized, a government-owned digital coin or digital asset here is the last thing we want. It's the the exact opposite of why Bitcoin, for example, was, was created here. They wanted something that gets away from government control. How long does it take before we see a government backed coin, be it in China or elsewhere, do you think? I think next year in China, we're probably going to see it uh, on a large scale. But, you know, these people who, you know, have a libertarian view and they don't want the government to, you know, be able to tax them and see all their transactions, 
I agree with that at a small scale, but when you can do, you know, $100 million and the government can't see it, governments have to clamp down on that. And if you look at the history of currency, the private sector always invents stuff, but the government comes along and clamps down. <laughs> can you envisage a future where a digital coin of some sort challenges the dominance of the, of the U.S. dollar? Well, I mean, it would be from China, but again, the governments are going to be the winners. The private sector is not. At best, something like Libra can compete with MasterCard and Visa and American Express and Western Union among the private payment mechanisms, but they have to have some kind of centralized reporting. Uh, the governments cannot allow things that they can't observe. But that's where China comes in, because China can say, well, we observe it. We don't really care if you do. Uh, if you don't like what we're doing in Iran, too bad. They already say that. So I, I think that's where the real future battle lies, between different governments with different views. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch. Thank you so much for writing about this. It's. Um it's fascinating. Ken Rogoff, former Thank chief you. economist at the IMF and professor of economics at Harvard University. We will continue this discussion, sir. <laughs> All right. Global auto sales are set for a bad year. We'll be talking about how car makers are working to attract more and different buyers. That's next. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. The Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, has pushed back on pressure from Boeing to approve its new 737 MAX jets. The aircraft has been grounded for several months now following two deadly crashes. But in a letter to Boeing, the FAA says it will determine when the 737 MAX is safe to return to the skies and not Boeing. Until then, Boeing is scrambling to find space to store the finished planes. Global auto sales could be on track for a 4% drop this year. That's according to Fitch, the biggest percentage decline since 2008. Demand from China is down 11% so far this year. And as the auto industry struggles around the world, many car makers are introducing new technology and bigger screens to lure customers. Ford is just one of them. The company has unveiled a 15.5-inch touchscreen display that will be in all-electric Mustang Mach-E SUVs. Ford also debuted in the new generation of SYNC system, the SYNC 4. Joining us now, Ford Chief Engineer for SYNC Technology, Gary Jablonski. Gary, fantastic to have you with us. I'm very excited about this. You called the SYNC 4 system a cell phone on wheels, effectively. Is this Ford basically saying, look, we are planning for a driverless future where you can be distracted, you can do work in your car? Um, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know that, that we're looking for uh, for a, a driverless future just uh, just quite yet. Um, our, our sync technologies have really always been designed around um, trying to make uh, the experience of driving the vehicle uh, easy, easy and hassle-free for our customers. Um, so Sync 4 is probably our largest in, in advancement in connected vehicle technologies since we, uh, we introduced the Sync technology originally 10 years ago uh, with Alan Mulally and, uh, and, and, and Bill Gates. Um, the big advancement here um, is uh, we know that customers' expectations in their vehicles are really based on their experiences with cell phones. And so uh, we really wanted to close that gap and provide that great connected experience in, in the vehicle. And that's what Sync 4 delivers for us. Um, it's going to give customers 
uh, the navigation experience they expect with fresh maps and traffic that's fed from the cloud. Um, it's going to give them a digital assistant that actually understands natural language when they speak to it. Um, and for entertainment, we know that you know pe people like to consume music by streaming from from cloud services. And so, again, a, a connected Sync 4 product like we're delivering is going to be able to deliver that entertainment experience as well. And it learns too. If you regularly call home or call your mother on the drive home from work, it will ask you if you want to dial your mother. Is that right? Right. One of the fantastic advancements that our uh, user experience designers have been able to achieve is uh, just a little bit of learning uh, as, as, as you drive the vehicle. And, uh, you know, examples like, like you cited, uh, if uh, every morning on the drive to work you listen to a particular radio station to get traffic, um, a button will pop up right on the front surface uh, just to give you a shortcut right, right to that function. Or if you call mom on the way home from work every day, uh, there will be a button right on the first surface of the screen that gives you just a, a quick shortcut to get to that function. And uh, they're small little things, but when, when you add them all together, we think it's going to make uh, the experience of driving with, with Sync 4 really enjoyable and easy. Well, how did you decide to use a screen that was 15 and a half inches. If I look at the Model S from Tesla, that's 17. I think Byton over in China's decided to go for a 48 inch display in a car that's coming next year. The whole dashboard is going to be a screen. What did you decide, uh, what made you decide that, that 15 and a half inches was right? And is there some, um, is there some justification for the fear that perhaps as a driver you get distracted? At a certain point, it can become a distraction. Um, well, you know, we started with uh, kind of this assumption that, you know, we didn't know anyone that ever bought a smaller TV. Um, so cl clearly there's a trend uh, for, for larger displays. And uh, for our user experience team, it really created a palette uh, that let them to do, do some really unique things that we think are actually going to make, make driving uh, a little more hassle-free. Um, we know that we're in a multitasking uh, culture. Uh, we're rarely doing one thing at a time. Um, and so uh, with the large screens, it enables us to maybe show a couple pieces of information. Um, maybe you're, uh, you're, you're navigating in your Mach-E and, and monitoring you know, distance to a charging station, but you also want to pay attention uh, maybe to a podcast. Um, and so um, on a smaller screen, you might be uh, flipping between screens in order to do all that, but on some of these large screen systems, we can actually show you all of that information at once. Now, as a chief engineer at Ford, I have to get your opinion of um, some of the debate that's been going on, particularly on social media, with regards Tesla's new Cybertruck and Ford's pickup as well, and the suggestion that there needs to be a rematch over the, the tug of war that was seen on social media. As a, as a chief engineer at Ford, can I get you to weigh in on this, please? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I personally love a good social media debate, but um, <laughs> here at Ford, we're super, we're super focused on our F-150 customers. They've made us the best-selling truck for 42 years in a row, and uh, we're super excited to kind of continue that heritage with, uh, with uh, a, a hybrid F-150 uh, next year and, uh, and a coming all-electric F-150. So we think the future's really bright for the F-150. Yeah, sounds like you're not afraid at this moment. <laughs> Gary, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Gary Jablonski there from Ford. All right, after the break, the founder of Papa John's Pizza takes a bite out of the company he founded and explains why the treat he concocted now leaves him with a pretty sour taste in the mouth. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back 
to first move. The founder and former CEO of Papa John's Pizza has gone cold on the product he used to sell. John Schnatner, who started the firm back in 1984, became embroiled in the row about NFL players' protests and eventually resigned. Now, in an interview with a Kentucky TV station, he said he believes the company is being mismanaged and hit out at the quality of the pizzas. He told WDRB, I've had over 40 pizzas in the last 30 days. Yes, and it's not the same pizza. It just doesn't taste as good. This is all a farce. Paul LaMonica joins us now. Paul, 40 pizzas in the last 30 days. Wow. Yeah, you have to do some serious gym workouts to offset that. So, I mean, that astonishing revelation aside, um, if we can, what do we think of what he was saying here? A change in, in, in pizza recipe, mismanagement of the company? Yeah, hmm. I, let's be honest here. Schnatter obviously has a bit of an axe to grind being forced out of the company that still bears his name and he's been lately putting his money where his mouth uh, is so to speak as well because he sold a lot of papa john's shares in recent months he's still a major shareholder but he's got just under three million shares of the company about a nine percent stake he at one point had about nine and a half million shares so he is clearly dissatisfied as for whether or not papa john's pizza doesn't taste as good as much uh, you know as it used to Let's just say I live in Brooklyn and have a one-to-one vowel-to-consonant ratio in my last name, so I don't really like chain pizza to begin with. So, <laughs> so you're not a lover of this, but have you ever eaten? No, I've had it. But Domino's, Papa John's, Pizza Hut—not my thing. When I can get good old-fashioned, good pizza in Brooklyn from a local business. Then I completely understand that. He did say, though, stay tuned. The day of reckoning will come and the record will be set straight. So um, some interesting yeah, warnings I, here for Papa John. But, yeah. I don't know. I mean, so to be worried. honest, the stock has really had a nice turnaround recently in his absence. Uh, starboard value activist investors come in. They've replaced Schnatter and uh, the person who took over for him with a CEO who used to be the president of Arby's, which has been one of the hotter fast food chains because of their quirky we have the meats campaign so i think papa john's might be on the right track without john yes i was about to say he may have a beef but it looks like no one else will paula monica thank you so much for that thank you let's move on and finally new york's latest arrival has been sent packing by authorities roxo the robot is it robot robot is a six-wheeled contraption which delivers fedex packages when it was seen trundling along a new york city street roxo was told to cease and desist mayor bill de blasio tweeted never get a robot to do a new yorker's job he also said they might clog up the already busy streets fedex figure that one out yes no to robots not right now, at least in New York. <laughs> Let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for markets at this moment. We are higher in a truncated week. But that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great Wednesday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.